and they went to pull me out and there was like some noise and I fell a few feet and stopped. And there was like the safety rope holding me and I thought, what was that? And they go, and there was like no answer. And then they said, oh, we'll tell you when you get up. Oh God. This is not your typical venture podcast. We assume the listener or the viewer can Google simple things like stage, industry focus, average check size, etc. Guests and interviewers do consume alcoholic drinks during the taping of our show. So we do so responsibly and we ask that everyone do so as well. So let's begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of Drinks with a VC. I'm Vic LaQuara. I'm the founder and general partner of Green Cow Venture Capital, a seed stage venture fund. And I'm joined, as always, by the co-hostess with the mostest, Brie Hansen. Brie runs BizDev for Berkland, a wonderful shop that provides CFO services for startups. So if you're interested in that, please reach out. Uh, Brie, how are you? I am doing well, Vic, but we have missed you dearly here at Drinks of the VC. Thank you for that. I, I do want to start off by addressing... Uh, a certain rumor that's been going around. Uh, in February, I got the flu. And then in March, I went on this amazing trip to Egypt. Uh, and when I re returned, a few folks have been pinging me saying, you know, are you okay? Uh, have you been axed from the Drinks with a VC podcast uh, and replaced by our very own, very sultry voiced, silver hair foxed uh, Reynolds Morgan? Uh, you know, thank you, Reynolds, amazing producer, uh, which look, I get that. Um, but can you really, really trust someone with two first names? No. And don't forget, he also goes by his middle name. Never trust anyone who goes by their middle name. Very good point. Very good point. Well, truth be told, I have not been replaced. Uh, and now that that is out of the way, uh, I know you were very excited uh, I've got uh, a ton of nervous excitement over here. I don't know if you can feel it. Um, how are you? How are you doing? Yes. Well, our next guest I met on March 5th of 2020, and I'll never forget how we met because he was pretty much the last person I saw before quarantine. <laughs> so um, it was an unforgettable experience for me. Why are you nervous? So, I mean, I think it's a couple of things. So I, I think when I don't have a relationship with the guest prior to them coming on the show, there's always a little bit of giddy, nervous excitement. Uh, but then it gets amped up like to a completely different level when the guest in question is an avid reader. Uh, and I find that very intimidating. Uh, I'm I'm also very envious of the uh, intentionality um, that goes into actively reading books and, you know, taking the time to learn on your own uh, and from a, a, a written uh, thing. Uh, so, you know, uh, I'm nervous. <laughs> that explains it. He is actually known as uh, being literally uh uh, one of ha having one of the best libraries in Silicon Valley has actually been written up by the Wall Street Journal for his library. And I did get a little sneak peek of it myself when I visited his home in Atherton. So uh, why don't you do what you do, Vic, and introduce our guest? Right then, right then. All right, here we go. So our next guest has an illustrious 
career in technology as both an operator and an investor after receiving a BA in astrophysics from Pomona College. Uh, he had a short stint at Xerox before going to work at Ultratech Stepper, a semiconductor capital equipment company, where he was eventually promoted to managing director of their Asian operations based in Hong Kong. Shortly after that, he would co-found Artisan Components in 1991 uh, and was also their VP of sales. Uh, Artisan would eventually be acquired by Arm Holdings in 2004 for, I believe, a billion dollars. Uh, after 15 years as a founder, leader, sales, and business development professional at technology companies, he found his seat on the other side of the table at Alloy Ventures. Uh, his first investment as a VC, do you know what it was, Brie? Uh, Ellie May. Yes, a little company called Electronic Mortgage Affiliates, now known as Ellie May. Uh, he's made investments uh, and holds board seats in, uh, into companies like Ceranova and Sonata. Molecular imprints, gradient design automation, integrated materials, Teradici, IP Extreme, and integrated photovoltaics. He is on the steering committee of the Israel Collaboration Network, also known as ICON, and a member of the board of directors of the Shalom Hartman Institute. Please welcome the pride of Mira Costa High School in Manhattan Beach, California, Dan Rubin. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. It is great to be here. Um, it's just kind of weird hearing someone else read a collection of uh, of bios for you. Uh, pretty darn good. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very excited to be here. Um, I do remember meeting Bree. It was just before the lockdown. In fact, the discussion was at that event: Would there be a lockdown? Um, and I have been I have been locked down more than most. Yes, very, very true. So, Dan, what are you drinking tonight before we get into all that? I have a 805 beer from the Firestone Walker Company. Um, I am a normal beer drinker, um, and now I am inspired to drink beers by what my children show me. So my son introduced me to the 805 beers. He is of legal age, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I want to thank your son. This is exciting because... Uh, I really get to lean into these kinds of episodes. Uh, most of our guests uh, have chosen the whiskeys and the hard uh, hard stuff. Uh, and now I get to showcase uh, my favorite brewery in St. Louis. It's called Civil Life. Oh, and uh, shout out to Jake Hafner and the team there. But I'm drinking their version of an Anchor Steam. Uh, which is a Californian common style beer. Uh, it's called Civil Common. So if you're ever in St. Louis, you gotta gotta come to Civil Life and and try this beer. It's really fantastic. Uh, but cheers to you, Dan. We're so excited to have you on the show, and we're excited to to uh, have this time with you. Years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, while we're on the topic of Miracosta. Uh, just by the way, for all of our listeners and viewers, um, I do believe that you were in the same class as Jeff Rohrer, who's a professional football player with the Cowboys. Uh, Michelle Tafoya, uh, was, went through, uh, Miracosta, uh, Anitra Ford 
who I believe was the first model on the prices right also went to Miracosta. That's pretty uh, good. I, I, unfortunately, I have to correct you. It's Miracosta. Miracosta. Is the way, is the way at least we butchered the original Spanish pronunciation. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. So, Fair enough. so the, the Southern California accent of it would be Miracosta. That's um, right. I, I knew Jeff quite well. Uh, he was actually a year ahead of me. Okay. okay. Um, and there was an event one time where my friends thought they needed to keep Jeff Rohr from crashing the party that was our, at our house. Um, and knowing Jeff, I just said, you know, it's just really not worth the effort. Let's just invite him in. Right. This was long before we knew he would be one of the few professional football players from Miracosta High School. But yes. yes. And we have followed his career and post career very closely since then. Yeah. Um, and and Miracosta has also been uh, kind of a feeder for Olympic medalists and volleyball professionals. Uh, but you went a very different route. Um, and you played a sport with a net, but, uh, like myself, you played badminton. Uh, how did you get into badminton? And I, I think you're still nationally ranked, uh, and, and hold the national rank. So, um, it's an odd thing. It turns out one of the other things Manhattan beach is famous for besides beach volleyball players. And yes, I overlapped with Mike Dodd, who was the coach of the Olympic team. And he lived around yeah. the corner is there was a private indoor Batman club that was a few blocks from our house. Um, and we joined when I was 11. And at some point in time, I said, this is what I want to focus on. Yeah. And my parents said, as long as you get good grades, you can do whatever you want. Um, so I ended up on the junior national team, the adult national team, and traveled the world playing badminton. Um, and it was a fascinating, fun experience. I even took a semester off college and uh, tried to make a living as a semi-pro badminton player in London, of all things. Wow. I Learned very quickly that my gene pool probably had other things in mind for me. Um, I ended up making five pounds. Um, now you laugh, a pound in those days was like 250, right? So this is like, you know, a lot of money. There you go. Yeah. For a starving student in 1980. Sure. Um, and I came back to school and I started studying harder. Uh, and I and I played a lot when I moved to Northern California and Oh, every few years when I turn another magic age group number, people want me to come back out. I guess my highlight was in college, I won the state collegiate championships, uh -huh. um, beating all of the D1 kids as a as a D3 player. And that was kind of my my peak at yeah. 19. Yeah, so. that that's amazing. I've got to take some tips from you. Uh, I went back to my high school and got on the court with uh, a few freshmen and uh felt every bone in my body every muscle uh after just being on the court for 35 minutes and and hitting it around um uh, it was it was painful it was painful uh you know I, I think you've you've moved on from badminton and found another athletic love in running um and i think one of the things I was reading about you so impressive is that you're still posting PRs uh, uh, to this day. Uh, do you want to tell us about your last race? Please. Um, I actually ran cross country in high school. 
um, to train for badminton. And it turned out I was the worst kid on the team that didn't quit. Uh, (laughs) And actually, at my 40th high school reunion for Miracosta, I actually met the kid who was worse than me who quit. And I told him the story. He goes, yep, yep, I quit because I was worse than you did. (laughs) Um, But uh, I ran a few marathons uh, when the my when my wife was pregnant with our second kid, because I figured I would never have time to do that again. And, and then I woke up one day and the kids were out of the house. And I said, I think I've always wanted to qualify for the Boston marathon. Let's try to do this. Yeah. And so uh, after two tries, I qualified and ran the Boston marathon. Uh, And then I had some illness issues and then I recovered. And in 19, 2019 at 59 and a half, I ran the CIM Sacramento Marathon uh, and ran a 332, which qualified me for Boston and New York. So that was my, that was kind of, you know, one of my exciting, great kind of adult, uh, adult moments. What's what thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. Of of course, of course. I guess uh, I'm, I'm very envious of you uh, and I want the one or two tips that you might have for someone that, you know, I fell out of sports and out of really training two a days, et cetera. And I'm searching for a couple of things, a couple of insights that might change my mindset a little bit and, and push me to um, regaining um, athleticism and health and, and that, what would be a couple of suggestions that you might have for people? Well, I have like, to like hold me. down because I'm supposed to be writing this half a book length thing for all my friends on how do you keep running after 60 or whatever. Yeah. Um, you got to stretch a lot. Stretching. Mm-hmm. Okay. You got to stretch a lot. And you, okay. it, as as the people I go to that help me stretch say, you can overstretch, but you can never stretch too often. Okay. Um, and so, like, every time I go upstairs, I go, oh, yeah, this is a reminder to stretch my calves. Um, and you have to build up really, really slowly. Uh, and you always need to take at least one better two days off a week. And this idea of running or exercising or doing whatever it is every day, sure, when you're 18 or 25, but when you're a little bit older, yeah, yeah, you need the rest and your body appreciates it. So build up slowly and take one or two days off. Well, and and to your point, uh, Bree and I are trying uh, to be the number one podcast amongst VCs when they're working out. So uh, I hopefully we're well on our way on that front. I want um, to listen to in the sauna on speaker. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. I think we should just play it at the San Francisco Bay Club in the yeah. sauna. Something like something of that nature would be great. Um, well, I, I, you know, as we do often on the show, we start with the origin story uh, of our guest. Um, and I think a question that we never get away from is, is around what kind of influence your parents and your siblings had on your upbringing. And um, because people assume a lot of times that, you might have been around tech and that's why you got into tech. You might have, you know, and, and I think that's 99% of the time, just entirely false. So what was it like? Who are the, who are the key influences in your life early on? 
Well, you said in surroundings and influence, you know, yeah. I, was, I was effectively born in Manhattan Beach. I believe it actually says Hollywood on my birth certificate. Um, and I grew up in Manhattan Beach, four blocks from the beach, yeah. two blocks from the pier, if anybody knows Manhattan Beach well enough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm one of those people who cannot complain at all about like the hand given to them early in life. Right. It is about as good a place as you can kind of grow up and as safe of a place. Um, and my parents were, you know, escapees from the East Coast who didn't want snow. Um, they were two Jewish parents in the medical business uh, who were not doctors. So it was just assumed unspoken that I would be a doctor Yeah. Um, all the way, um, even to the point where. After my company in 1998, when I was 37 years old, went public, my dad <laughs> said, now you have the time and the money to go back to medical school. <laughs> um, so their deal was, as long as I studied and got good grades, I could do whatever else I wanted to do. Uh, and it was kind of this unspoken kind of rule. So I studied hard and then got in trouble kind of behind everybody's back. Yeah. Uh, but as long as the grades held up. Um, so it was it was all about like studying and doing well. Were those the values that they they instilled in you? Just a lot of studying and education or were there other values that you felt like? It, it was studying and education. And, you know, one thing that I'll talk a little bit about later. Um, my parents were always about being early to everything. Hmm. And I don't think I appreciated this enough. We were always early to every event Hmm. and i have learned later in life the value of showing up 15 minutes before board meetings or 10 or 15 minutes before other events when i was when i had a sales role you just learn so much from it Um, and so in their mind it was kind of all about the respect about not being late Right. And in my experience, it has become sort of almost mercenary about like, what else can you lose, learn that people aren't telling you by being early? Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that was, that was clearly a value about, you know, get, getting there early. That was yeah. a great life lesson, actually. Um, when I was in sales, Dan, I remember sometimes when I went early, you would understand the beats and the rhythms of the office, which would help you with your sales presentation. Oh, in, in the days where I was selling to fabulous semiconductor companies, people always like put plaques on the wall and awards and all this kind of stuff. And I could learn so much. You know, there was no there was no Internet then. You could learn so much about everything. And there was actually two times where our startup company where we were able to make payroll because I knew the receptionist by name well enough that she went back to a county to pick up the deposit check so we could go make payroll. And it's yes, Bree, you're absolutely right. You learn so much by being there. Yeah. Uh, Did you always know that you wanted to get into tech? So, in other words, no, not at all. I started, I assumed medical school. And then when I decided to do physics, I would do physics in medical school. Um, And then uh, my first summer at at Xerox, I spent four summers working for Xerox down in El Segundo in Southern California. Um, I wrote down on like the introduction thing that I wanted to get a PhD in math or physics. Um, and my boss that summer said, well, don't be ridiculous. 
you're not the type of guy to get your PhD in anything. He says, any all the PhD people I know keep neat notebooks and your notebook is pathetic. And you're <laughs> like, you're too into talking to people to like go get your PhD. And so um, I was just going to do physics. And then after um, I went to England for a semester, I came back and I said, I want to do international relations uh, oh. and physics. And I trained to be a cold warrior, as I joked. I took Russian. I took physics. I had the CIA application and the State Department application. Um, I looked at all of these different things and then... Everybody from my fraternity offered me a job in Silicon Valley if I could get up and I came up. So it was with that much thought that I came to Silicon Valley 40 years ago. Uh, a fond memory that you mentioned in your questionnaire, you said uh, that uh, one of the fondest memories from your childhood was spending time in the Pacific Northwest at the age of 17 entirely by yourself. Um, and that you know, a couple of things, you know, it typically doesn't make the the top of our guest list in terms of, you know, spending time in solitude. Uh, so curious as to what was memorable about that time oh, and what that there, says. There about was you. no solitude involved. <laughs> oh, OK. Uh, uh, no, if by myself, as in like without parents. <laughs> Sorry, I wrote it this okay. Like, All right. So this is like Rumspringa kind of thing. <laughs> yes. This was like I was supposed to climb Mount Rainier with the Boy Scouts. And I was supposed to be at a badminton tournament and they were a week apart. And I convinced my parents to let me do the whole thing by myself. And it kept getting extended. And it was all about getting in trouble and almost getting killed and, you know, not having uh you know, not, you know, there was no email in those days. You called your parents, you know, collect, you know, every two weeks sure. right, about whatever. And, you know, taking the trailway bus home, you know, and, you know, this kind of stuff. And um, if I ever get around to writing enough, it's the story that I would write for my kids. Oh, yeah. man. Now I kind of want to know, Bree, don't you about sort of the yeah. near near death experience that you had in Mount Rainier? Give us at least one good story from that trip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I had been mouthing off to the leaders on the Mount Rainier climb. And this was supposed to be both a, a summit of Mount Rainier and like hardcore mountaineering training. So one of the things they teach you in these things is, in addition to all of the ice axe stuff and saving is like if you fall into cravat a crevasse how do you climb out hmm. and so i was the first volunteer to go into the crevasse and they lowered me down into this just the most scary thing i've ever done where you can't see the bottom and you're freezing cold and there's some friends on a little ice bridge taking pictures and didn't work. They didn't set up the system right. I had trouble getting out. And they finally got, oh, you've been down there long enough, Dan. And they went to pull me out. And there was like some noise. And I fell a few feet and stopped. And there was like the safety rope holding me. And I thought, what was that? And they go, and there was like no answer. And then they said, oh, we'll tell you when you get up. Oh, God. And I saw that all my friends who were watching me raced over. 
And apparently they were pulling me up with this, they call it a Z pulley system. Oh, man. And some rope broke. And they all, like a cartoon character, all the people pulling me fell down. And then, like, the rope slithered off. And, like, a childhood friend who had never, like, belayed on ice, you know, did the right thing with the safety rope. And so um, I have never been back on snow or ice since. Wow. Um, Woo. That, that is harrowing. Right. Yeah. Do you uh, still keep in touch with the 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 kid, your classmate that uh, had the heads up move there? I do, and it's remarkable that you asked that question. Um, he was actually uh, one of my closest friends from uh, elementary school, and uh, I and he and I live uh, two miles apart from each other now. That's amazing. <laughs> Uh, I have a question for you. Uh, this is unplanned entirely. Do you find yourself uh, keeping in touch closer with your elementary school friends and high school friends versus your college friends? What's the the mix there? Uh, it's it's kind of mixed. Hmm. Um, uh, there's a few friends from high school though that I'm still in touch with. Yeah, just kind hmm. of nice and fun. And since my dad still lives in Manhattan Beach. There's always been reasons to go back to high school reunions. I mentioned in the beginning, we're going to shift shift a little bit here, that uh, actually Bree mentioned in the beginning that you have a massive library, two floors in, in your home. Uh, and in, this, in your spare time, you love to read everything from espionage thrillers to books on hardcore political theory. Uh, where did your lust and your 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 love for books come from? You know, at our house there was a lot of books, and I still remember hmm. some of the books that were you know in the living room of our house. And I just always remember reading. Yeah, you know, when I traveled the Pacific Northwest, I had a bunch of books in my backpack, and I kind of always read and then when i spent time in asia and various other places you know pre-internet i just always carried a book and yeah. read this stuff and then at some point in time i was 14 or 15 i found out that you could buy used books at a bookstore no such thing existed in manhattan beach but in long beach there was a place called acres of books yeah. <laughs> which was like the famous did you know Acres of Books? Oh, I used to work in Long Beach. I would go there every Friday and I would buy my dad a book from the World War II section. Because they had a huge war wow. room full exactly. of war books. And and my history teacher in high school kept talking about Acres of Books. And I went there with like some kid books and I got $12 in credits and I got new books. And I have been buying used books since then. So I have historically, oh. except for a brief period of time when, you know, between January and March of 2000, when the market was really high, when I bought like used rare books, right? I just buy like, I, I buy like used books at bookstores, at Friends of the Library bookstore. And I had, I had boxes and boxes and dozens of boxes of books. Um, so I convinced the architects that I needed a library to hold those books. Hmm. Oh, his library is amazing. It, ha it has a ladder, correct? No, it has a spiral staircase oh, that's right. a spiral between the staircase. first and the second floor. And under the heading of first world problems, the architect <laughs> said, you can't have the ladder and the spiral staircase. It would look too much. 
So we have hmm. we have the spiral staircase. I don't know if you can see it. Oh, we should link to the article that Wall Street Journal did on uh, your library. Um, the oh, the photos are fantastic. Bree was saying that you've you know in 2012 you said that you had 3,000 books. Um, what number are you at now? You know, I haven't counted since that article. I, I My wife really wants me to give them old ones away as fast as I buy new ones. So I, I, probably, I, I probably crept up a little bit from 3,000. Um, but, but do you do the, yeah. Friends at Sorry, the go ahead. Because I used to be on the board of Friends of the Library in Newport Beach. So I used to be in charge of their dollar book sales. So super familiar. Yeah, well, I used to take my kids to the uh, Redwood City Library um, so they could read and get all excited. And then the joke was if they behaved, they got ice cream. And if I behaved, I got to spend like 20 minutes in the front of the library book sale at the bottom floor. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Is there any particular way that you organize them? No, there's sort of by sections. And um, because I'm a California boy and I've been through earthquakes, um, the heavy books are not upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> yep. that, that's simple enough. Well, right. we want to add a few more to the collection. So you should have a bag labeled B there. Uh, go ahead and open that up and uh, we'll we'll go through. Bag, bag B? Bag B. Wow. I have the Solomon Rushdie book. Yep. Thank you. That's Vic. Vic, you want to say why you chose that book? Uh, yeah. So uh, like a lot of children's classics, it's chock full of a lot of inventive wordplay. And uh, and it's set in this very imaginative, immersive world. Um, but there are quite a few adult themes, particularly around the power of the written word uh, to challenge dictators. And I think... Uh, when you read it, I don't know if you've read the story, the, uh, but um, the the heroine is a storyteller. Uh, and I think as VCs, oftentimes we kind of equate ourselves to being storytellers on behalf of our startups, uh, on the behalf of the companies that we might work for. Um, and so I, I just uh, feel like as a, as a VC with a strong uh, moral compass that it would... Uh, it would oh, that's nice. I, I, I really like that. I, I did read Midnight's Children. That's the only one I read by him. Yeah, absolutely. It was That was a fantastic book. I, I read Haroon in the Sea of Stories when I was very young. And then like uh, Herman Hess, Siddhartha, I've read uh, Haroon in the Sea of Stories multiple times since then. And every time I take something a little bit different from it. So uh, worth a read for sure. Then I had Inheritance by Danny Shapiro. I don't know the book. So that was one I chose. And I love this book because it's about a woman who grew up Jewish and she gets a DNA test and finds out that her father is not her father. (laughs) And she comes to grips with, is she Jewish? Who is she? Um, It's a very good, I think, modern tale about people coming to um, grips with who they really are. But then there's this just overall, I think, um, common thread of just humanity. Like it doesn't really matter. Like we're all human. So it's just a really great story. 
Bukowski notes of a dirty man. Yeah, of a dirty old man. That's from Ren. So you'll have to get uh, his his pick there. <laughs> <laughs> We're not sure about the story. This is the new one. I, I I read the review. I do a much better job of reading book reviews now than I do of the books. Of Palo Alto. <laughs> yes. So I we picked that one for you because you love political stuff. This is supposed to be kind of a, a capitalist look at California and its role in society. And as a California boy, like both Vic and I are also native Californians. Yeah. So I figured uh, you could read that and give us the Cliff's notes uh, or we can ask chat GPT because that was a big one. I don't think I'm going to get through that one anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and then you, you bought them at City Light Books, the City Light Books hat. And we That's got you because right. we know you love running with hats. Right. And I love City Light Books. The number of times I've taken my kids up there um, uh, super fun. Thank you, guys. Yeah, you're welcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Well, we'd love to kind of jump into that. Speaking of politics, uh, littered across your questionnaire was I am addicted to hardcore political theory. and and so I think Bree and I are both really interested about what stoked that curiosity. Um, it's even more interesting given your background in tech and your you know major at Pomona was not in, in politics, it was astrophysics. <laughs> so where did it come from? And what brought that about? Um, I literally had a class sophomore year on in the history class, and yeah. we were reading sort of about the enlightenment thinkers and someone, one teacher had this throwaway comment that that's sort of like influenced Jefferson and the fathers of the country. And we're saying like, wait a second, like, like how does, how does this influence thing go? Right. Mm-hmm. And the more you read about these, the early founders of whatever movement, mm-hmm. right. The more you see that they were all influenced by somebody before that had written these books. And like, Fundamental, profound sea changes happen as people have written books. And sometimes those books are written, you know, in Scotland in the 18th century, you know, and not in Spain because of, you know, various accidental things. And when I started hearing about this, I was absolutely fascinated by it. And if I could have figured out in college a way to make a living, you know, reading this stuff, I would have. It just seemed like a, a, a technical degree during the Reagan military boom was the easiest way to get a job. Yeah, um, and so now, as I have more time in my life, I'm not reading many physics books. I am reading, you know, other books. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. You mentioned influence, and uh, my question to you is: Have we always? been this as a society where everything has become politicized like the fact that i can't drink a bud light without it being politicized (laughs) or is this purely a construct of the social media channels that we have now that magnify voices of influencers and politicians etc that has created this dynamic where everything is politics and you have to pick a side. I think social media has made it 
a lot worse. But the country's gone through these times. You think about the U.S. at the time of the Civil War, mm. right? Or of the lies that happened in my American history isn't precise enough in the first or second election where people would run around and say, oh, the other candidate died, right? Or, you know, or civil wars or revolutions that happened in countries. I mean, you think about, you know, Germany after World War II, right? Yeah. That was completely political side, politicized, yeah. where people said, well, I have to be a Nazi or I have to support Hitler because I can't be a communist. Right. And the range of choices was a hundred times worse than what you know we have to face here. Yeah. Um, so I think it looks bad, and I I'm sure social media has influenced it. Uh, but I think I, I think I think it's been around a lot longer. And then mm. the question is really how deep is it? Yeah. Mm. Right. Because, you know, once you get out of this country and you meet another American and you're going, oh, you're a hunter and you voted for Trump. Right. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, I'm not. And, you know, and, and right. And I voted for Hillary. And it's like, but let's have dinner together anyways, because we're the only two Americans here. Right? Yeah. Um, and I think I think the divisions can fall can can collapse fairly quickly in in a lot of ways and i think we just hear the most extreme voices so yeah. I'm, I'm left a lot more optimistic than most so oh. i've got a question and this is um so you seem to have a lot of interest in politics religion and then obviously business and sometimes I look at the leaders of those three groups and I see a lot of similarities in leadership. Uh, you know, you can look at Caesar and look at the way he led. And that led to a lot of people, you know, obviously getting discontent with the way he leads. And we see that in also religion and we see that at business. What have you learned about leadership in studying politics, religion and business? You know, there, it's all really hard, right? It's all about, Rick, I'm going to use your words, telling a story and selling a message. I like telling stories. I like having a, a, a thing to sell or something to get at. Um, but you can learn a lot from whether it be military leaders or religious leaders or political leaders on who are the successful ones and how they have dealt with like the unending difficulties and telling a story and, you know, pulling those stories out at various board meetings to calm everybody down sometimes helps. Let's switch subjects a little bit. Um, you listed uh, Goldie Mayer uh, as one of your people that you admire the most. And for our listeners and viewers out there, she is the first prime minister of Israel uh, that's a, that was a female, uh, and also the fourth prime minister uh, overall, I believe. Uh, and she was known as the Iron Lady. Uh, but wh why did you you choose her? Where was the influence because, there? Like, you couldn't get a harder task than trying to be a woman prime minister in the Middle East, where mm -hmm. Hebrew was, I think, her third or maybe fourth language. Wow. Right? 
came up in a, she moved from the United States or she had moved from Ukraine to the United States and, and then to Israel where it was under British rule, eventually independence. So the situation was so hard and so difficult, right? And her whole life is about, well, what, you know, don't, and she used to say versions like, you know, don't let, you know, perfection be the enemy of the good, right? Like how do you, hmm solve the problem at hand, knowing that you can't solve everything. And then simultaneously, and this is why I also kind of, the other one I love from the Middle East is T.E. Lawrence, you know, of, of mm -hmm. Lawrence of Arabia, mm -hmm. right? who was sort of a generation before her. She was, he was kind of act, active in World War I. It was like, their secret was not just learning the local language, but like, understanding all of the tribes and political influences that 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 were there at the time how do you understand all of the little players what everybody's motivations are and from that you could have a better chance of getting done what you wanted to get done and so to me it was always an insight on at least those two characters for me right and they just had fascinating stories and fascinating lives. So it's kind of fun to read them. And there's, there's thousands of other examples. It's like, how do you go into a new environment and say, I want to accomplish something and make sure you read everything you can and you talk to everybody you can, right? With the understanding that you're only going to get a fraction of it done. Wow. Yeah. She sounds like she was a good listener. She was probably a good listener. And she she just kind of really understood she had really good political instincts. Some people are like that. You know, Bill Clinton was like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just kind of understood enough about what everybody else thought, your friends and your enemies and the different fragment, fra fractions of different parties to kind of understand how do you get things done. We wanted to get a little bit more into the business side of things. Um we all know what just happened with SVB. There was a run on collapse and it was very politicized. Um, this has also ushered in a new era of skepticism, um, a noticeable slowdown in deals. Actually, I can say I saw Greg at the Upfront Summit uh, prior to it, and he was showing a slowdown of deals on his uh, presentation. So it should have come to no surprise to him that, you know, everything is slowing down um, a lot in the VC community. Um, on the one hand, this is a fantastic time to be building. Um, on the other, it's really difficult to be fundraising. How do you think that companies should operate under these current conditions? I'm old enough. Unfortunately, I've been there. I've been here at least twice, right? We saw this in 08, 09, right? We saw this after 01, 02. Um, and as they always say, the best companies are built during these times. Yes. Like, the company that I was a co-founder of, I was the fifth co-founder of the five co-founders, was started in March of 91. Right? There was an article in Inc. Magazine that one of the founders saved that was titled, is now the best time to start a company. It was a giant recession right back then. And there was giant disruptions in the semiconductor industry. There was opportunities for new companies. And you have to run your business uh, or your venture firm according to like the terrain you find yourselves on, right? The military history view of it. 
And if the environment doesn't have a lot of funding and it's time to go figure out how to be profitable or not or to run experiments on what's the right product, then now is the time to do it. And this is why I think the opportunity for the great companies to kind of figure out those parts again. It's not all just kind of vertical SaaS. Right? Mm. We have to do a lot of different things. We have to think really hard about what's the right way to sell, who are your right partners, what's the right business model. Um, and it's always like that. It's just now when everybody says, well, what do we focus on, right? You just got to be a little bit more focused on some of the fundamentals. So you bring up funda- yeah, you bring up fundamentals. Um, you know, this is all happening with the backdrop of SBF and FTX, right? And you know, I, I think a lot of investors in our shoes, advising companies, we see that there's a, a healthy amount of skepticism now and a healthy amount of distrust um, amongst our LPs funding us. And making sure that, you know, we're doing the proper due diligence into the companies that we're funding and being good fiduciaries of of their capital. And so at this point in time, startups are not only having to deal with, you know, the volatility that happens when an SVB, you know, uh, occurs, but they're also dealing with a noticeable uptick in the scrutiny that they're facing with regards to their business model. And, uh, you know, I'd love to understand because you've been there, you've, 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 you've done that, as you said, you've gone through multiple cycles like this, um, and you've spent a lot of time guiding companies through their journey of, of finding the right business model. Can you tell us a little bit about how that process might have evolved over this period of time, uh, how it might be different? Um, and then we'd love to kind of dig into a couple of those uh, bits and 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 see how you've come out on the other end. So there's this fallacy, I think, both in politics and business, that you can sort of predict or engineer the future, right? And the best that you can do is like talk to a lot of people, especially those who don't agree with you. Right. To try to understand, you know, what's over like the next month's or quarter's horizon. Mm. Um, And when there's giant disruptions, and my guess is AI will be as big or if not bigger disruption than all of them. There are really interesting opportunities to say, well, what should the right business model be? Right. And. Again, it's not all vertical SaaS. We all understand kind of how to go ramp and what metrics are for vertical for vertical SaaS. You mm-hmm. know, there was a day where we didn't know what SaaS was, right? We had to figure out, you know, could if we had to handle the compute, you know, and not the customer we sold disks to, right? Would our margins collapse? And and this kind of stuff. So I think there's always changes. And I think it's a normal, you know, after Silicon Valley Bank failed, we all said, well, what happened to the risk officers? Right? Well, in some ways, there ought to be, that's the role of a board, that's the role of, of a diverse 
founder group. That's the the best single argument for diversity at a company with a different backgrounds and difference of opinion is to try to increase the chances that someone says, maybe I shouldn't have all my money at Silicon Valley Bank, right? Yeah. Or whatever the particular particular kind of kind of issue is. So I think it's I think it's the job of of the founders and the management team and the board to sort of always be looking at like what should that kind of model be? How should we be operating? Yeah. Can you take us through artisan components, for instance, the company you founded in '91, and and sort of learnings from that? Yeah. So I was the the fifth co-founder, as I like to say, and it's important because the other four co-founders came out of the electronic design automation space, the software for designing the chips. Mm -hmm. uh, this was a big part of the semiconductor industry. So once upon a time, there were monoliths like Intel and you know AMD and IBM, and then eventually you had like semiconductor equipment manufacturers, and then a different group would design the software that would help you make the chips. And then TSMC in Taiwan showed up right to say, well, you can be a fabulous semiconductor company and you can just do the design and we'll manufacture for you, right? Over many other beers, we'll tell you stories about, I used to eat in the cafeteria at TSMC before it was TSMC, right? As we <laughs> helped that company get off the ground in 86, literally in my, sure. in, in a previous job. Um, and then the founder um, who I had worked with before said, oh, well, maybe there's this like other component spinning out, which is semiconductor intellectual property, all of kind of the base libraries, base components. And maybe there should be a company doing this. So like hmm. with as much thought of that, he like left his job, grabbed three other founders with no money, and they started the company. And then I was having breakfast with him and he invited me to be the fifth co-founder. And I said, but I don't know anything about this space. You know, I took two electrical engineering classes in college, but I don't know the space. He goes, no, we want someone who's not from the industry who will help us think different. Hmm. Right. And I thought, I, I think of that comment more and more now. Right. So basically, we all collectively, I asked a lot of questions. Well, why are we doing it this way? Like, this makes no sense to me. And he goes, well, that's what it's always been done that way. Well, that's not really a good enough answer. Let's figure out what to do. Um, mm. And then um, I had this kind of epiphany one time where I was trying to sell to a particular, he was an Israeli semiconductor, uh, fabulous startup company. And he said, I'm not going to buy your product. I go, well, why not? Everyone else is buying. He goes, it doesn't make any sense, your distribution strategy. I should be buying this from the semiconductor foundry, from TSMC, not from you. And I went back and I said, the guy has a point, <laughs> right? And so they go, no, he's wrong. So I went to talk to him again. And he sort of told me exactly why he couldn't buy from us. And we changed our entire business model based on this one customer saying, I needed to buy through that particular distribution channel, right? And that yeah. made all the difference in the world. We wiped out all of the competitors. Company got public. It was the second IPO after the Asian crisis. And 
And then I left uh, before it was sold, but then Arm bought it for a billion dollars a few years later. Yeah. Two really great lessons you've really brought up, Dan, is one, don't surround yourself with yes people. Surround yourself with diversity of thought. And um, two, listen to your customers. Especially the ones that tell you no, right? Yeah. We always talk about listening to our customers. And to me, it was like the great insight, right? You know, everyone says, well, I want this. I want this feature. I want it to be blue. I want the wires to go this way. I want the software to do this way. And, you know, we're all trained to do that, right? But it was like we weren't trained to go listen to the customer and say no. And I just got lucky that someone said, no, go back and talk to him again. I, well, he had an insight. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you think it is that so many companies out there, uh, when they achieve a certain maturity size, um, that they they fail to continue to listen to those customers that are saying no. I think it's just the natural, like growth of, of employees. Yeah, it's like you hire a salesperson, you give them a commission, you train them to focus on the most likely deals they're going to close, and there's no motivation for that saleswoman to spend any more time with the customers that said no. Yeah. And the person who's trained to do that is like the land and expand first person on the beach kind of biz dev level VP, but they don't want to talk to the little customer anymore. They're busy figuring something else out, yeah. right? We actually, in our life, in our social environment and in our business, we don't really have a good way to kind of look at the minority opinion, if you will. Mm. Yeah. I have to institutionalize that. Yeah. Uh, so oftentimes on the show, uh, we point to a lot of the questions that, you know, when answered can really be very insightful for founders. Um, I'm going to be a little bit selfish here and talk for all of the young VCs that are out there um, that want to get better at talking to their founders. And um, uh, I'm interested in learning a little bit from you about uh, what is the best way for investors to build relationships with their their founders and their portfolios so that you can have these hard questions with them. You can be the no man in the room that says, you know, hey, look, you're not listening to your customers and you need to do this, but do so in a way that they listen to you. Um, that they don't it doesn't just go in one ear and not the other. Yeah. I, I don't know if I have the best way. I have hmm. some successes. <laughs> there, there were certainly some failures from which I, I learned also about how to do that. But in some ways, it's like any relationship. You have to put in the time, right? You have to spend enough time with the CEO of the company. In fact, one of my, one of my partners at Alloy um, used to joke that you should spend enough time with the CEO one-on-one, -on -one, whether it's over drinks or dinner, that you can get in a giant argument on the phone, say, F you, slam down the phone, and then call him back the next day and have a normal conversation. Like, you know, like, can you get to that level, yeah. right, where it's really like a relationship, right, where there's enough of the things that you can actually 
have that level of argument. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, I think it has to be built on this odd relationship between a venture person and a, and a CEO, which is like, neither of you actually know the correct answer all the time. Yeah. Right. And you're not paid to know the correct answer all the time. Those, especially young CEOs think they have to have known the correct answer all the time. And that we're really trying to figure this out together. Hmm. Right. So like, when I, as a venture person, am talking to other people at the company, that's not to like go behind your back to like see if it's time to fire you yet, right? <laughs> it's really all of I, I have done that. Don't worry. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> um, it, it, it is really all about like trying to figure out what else is going on in the business that I can understand enough that I can ask you the best questions. Yeah. So, like, if you say, oh, Mrs. CEO, I want to talk to your COO, and you don't tell them why, then they're going to be suspicious. If you say, like, God, coming out of the board meeting, there was some really good points. There's a few things I really don't understand, right? Tell me who at the company I should go talk to so I can understand the stuff so I won't be as, like, dumb of a VC, and I mm -hmm. can kind of help. Yeah. You know? that that kind of approach kind of most of the time sort of builds confidence with the CEO because you want to be there together helping. Yeah. And then show respect, like, you know, literally show up early, right? I learned so much from showing up early at board meetings. Yeah. You get to meet other people. You get to talk to other people. Everybody's guard is down. The CEO's not in, oh, my God, I have to do this presentation to the board for the second <laughs> mode, right? Everyone's kind of joking, and you can learn a lot. Yeah. I, I, have a wonder, I have a wonderful story. I used to show up early to the LMA board meetings. It was a long commute. In those days, we had to drive, so I'd always get there early. And there was a woman who worked right outside the door of where the board meeting is, and she, she had, like, the most menial data entry job. And we used to always say hi. And at some point in time, she kind of hinted to me that how busy she was was really the best correlation to how well the company was doing. Interesting. And it was like, but I would always ask her, like, well, how busy have you been? Right. And it was like this other metric. Well, then I started bringing in donuts for her and her team. <laughs> and so this became a whole joke among the board that Dan was always bringing donuts to bribe this team for more information, right? Yeah. It was like the most wonderful story. Like I wanted the whole, I didn't know that I wasn't smart enough to know it at the time, right? But the fact that the CEO knew that I was trying to learn about the business from like the lowest paid employee at the company, right? You know, that, that, that's kind of a sense that you're building a team together. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've thought too much about this, but do you feel like VC founder relationships are less like a marriage now? They're more transactional and so it's less effective? Or is there some sort of hope that we can we can come back from that and and go back to to way that, I may have to answer to the way it was both parts of your question no yeah. I worry a lot recently um I yeah. would say particularly among younger founder younger younger uh 
board members and younger investors, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if they're newer funds and they don't have kind of the old retiring partners, right? Whose only goal there is to kind of train the new partners. Yeah. On the amount that I learned from my retiring older partners was just extraordinary. Um, And I think, I think it has become transactional and there's this like, Oh, I got to make this deal happen super quickly because I need the checkbox so I can like, you know, have the win and do my next fund or leave and do my next fund. I think it has become very, very, very transactional. Um, And I do hope we can get back to it. Uh, I worry a little bit about when there's so many deals and so much to do and the time frame, everyone wants the time frames to compress. Yeah. Um, and I hope we get back to it. Yeah. Do you think assets under management, just kind of like that explosion has a lot to do that and the pressures that are on that? Well, as the same very smart partner uh, at Alloy used to say, there is no asset class that can't be ruined by too much capital going into it. <laughs> um, um, I actually worry less about the number of dollars in than yeah. the number of deals that people have to deal with. Sure. Right. And, you know, under steady state, there's some average number. And when everything's going up to the right, you kind of think you're Superman and Superwoman and you can take on more deals. Right. But then you get yeah. back to the Silicon Valley bank failure. Right. Which, by the way, happened the night of the rehearsal dinner for my daughter's wedding and my daughter and son-in-law are all of their friends <laughs> are no, no. in venture or at startups one way or another. And everyone was asking me like, well, what's going to happen? <laughs> you guys are, are closer to the ground than, than this. Um, I think we're now back to the kind of the normal state of affairs where things are rocky and you got to figure out business models and you got to make tough calls and you know you better have the, the bandwidth to go spend that time working it out right yeah. don't think of it as like the worst task in the world think of it as now oh, that's your job and that's the the learning that goes on you know when you yeah. when you help company a navigate through something you know you can help company b yeah so dan we talked a little bit about not wanting to surround yourself with yes men how do you go about um, soliciting alternative viewpoints as you get higher and higher up and more and more people are more likely to tell you what you want to hear? Yeah, I think you have to force yourself to do that. And I think, you know, the worse it gets on social media, Vic, to your point earlier, the more you have to do it. Um, one of my closest friends, he's been a friend for since we moved up to Silicon Valley, is politically the opposite of me. And so I made a deal with him that I would read the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal every day, and he would read the editorial page of the New York Times every day. Um, He did not keep up his end of the bargain. Um, I did, (laughs) right? Uh, And I find it a fascinating experience to read the editorial page. I mean, you always read the rest of the paper, but to read the editorial section of the Wall Street Journal. And I just think the, the idea that you have to discuss the concept that you have to discuss the ideas because you you can't be sure that you're right. And so it's kind yeah. of the people who are the most successful find and act, actively search out and find those people who can tell them, no, your idea isn't very good or 
no, you need to keep probing in this area. Mm -hmm. I worked with a guy once who said it took it took two people to make David, the statue of David. It took Michelangelo to carve it and it said someone else to say, stop, stop, stop. It kind of looks like David, right? <laughs> you 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 kind of you kind of need to find that other individual or group of people to run the ideas by. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you know, I think a lot of us have experienced a founder that they'll hear the no or the the feedback, and they don't either know how to solicit the gold from that feedback, or they just discount it altogether. What's some of your advice to um, soliciting really good feedback and then making it actionable? This is you're saying from a, a founder who's looking for a founder who or a CEO, early CEO as they're kind of moving along. Yeah, I would say an early CEO is they're moving along and they're trying to because they'll they'll hear like no and then maybe they just move on and it, they're they're not really soliciting that feedback. Yeah, I struggle with this all the time because there's these people who heard no's and they keep plowing through and are kind of wildly successful at the end, right? The mm -hmm. story, the story after story. Um, but in almost all of them, right? You know, in the Facebook story, there's somebody who said, you know, let's just stay with college kids for a while before we move out, right? He had someone yeah. to talk to, right? You know, the rumor at Google was, you know, they started doing enterprise search, right? And it was this bootleg project to do paid search. I don't know if I can't confirm that story exactly, right? Um, so, but I think it falls under the heading of like, don't be so certain that you're right. Right. And yeah. seek out, seek out those people with different opinions, even if you don't listen to them or even if you don't follow them, you still have practiced your storytelling and your argument. Mm. Back to our storytelling example. There. Lincoln's yeah. team of rivals, I think, is what that reminds me of. Team of rivals. Mm -hmm. Spectacular book. Spectacular story. Absolutely. Right. Getting into storytelling. And just kind of exploring that as an earlier founder. So now we're going earlier into the, the founder journey. Um, obviously, I think founders are told a different story, right? It's like, hey, be true to your North Star and stick with it, right? You, you find your narrative and you, you go forward. Um, but oftentimes, finding that narrative can be very difficult. Uh, and you've got a couple of different takes um, on the pitch and the narrative and storytelling. I love to hear uh, those takes, particularly around the one minute coffee pitch. Uh, and I think there are three things that you tell uh, all entrepreneurs to do when when they're creating their pitch decks. So have at it. Well, thank you. So everyone understands the two-minute elevator pitch. Yeah. So none of us in Silicon Valley have buildings long enough that are last two minutes. But the idea is the founder finds the venture capitalist in the elevator and in two minutes can tell their story. But what I've always found is important is if I've just spent 45 minutes or, or an hour with a founder in a conference room where they're telling me their story, and then I go to refill my cup of coffee and I run into one of my partners 
and I tell her, I just saw this really exciting deal that does the following, and here's why I like it. So to me, the one-minute coffee pitch is, what's the story that a moderately sophisticated investor, but who doesn't know the details of your company, <laughs> can walk away with and tell their partners? And to me, if the entrepreneur can think back on how I want the venture capitalist to leave with that story, they might modify their pitch a little bit. Mm -hmm. That means leaving out like all of the product names. That mm -hmm. means leaving mm -hmm. out the bestest, greatest, because those are never words that I would use, right? It's a very simple thing of here's what we're doing, or here's why the world changed that allows us to do this, and here's what we're doing, and here's why we should look further at it, mm -hmm. right? So I call that the one-minute coffee pitch. It is the non-sophisticated receiver of the story being able to retell. Yeah. Sense because ultimately you're going to play telephone. You have to go pitch it and if you don't pitch it correctly to your partners, they're going to say no. Yeah. Right. And I'm going to hear a lot of pitches and I'm only going to share the most exciting ones. Yeah. So yes, it's like playing telephone. I like that Bree. When I heard, you know, five other versions and I'm uh, five other different stories and I'm only going to pass one on. Yeah. What's the best way to practice that? Is it just um, going up to your mom and, and <laughs> saying, hey, here's my one minute coffee pitch and then seeing what she recalls? Um, that's a good way. The other way I like it is when I do introductions for people, I effectively ask them to write me that one minute coffee pitch. What's the 80 word, 100 word introduction that I'm going to forward to my 10 friends mm -hmm. who are VCs who do something? And I want you to write it as if it's from me. Yeah. Right. So, bestest, greatest, all of those things you take out. Mm -hmm. right? You know, my friend is doing the following. Here's why it's interesting. Here's why it's cool. It's a very straightforward thing. Yeah. And I found some entrepreneurs can write that the first time and some can't even get the concept of it. Yeah. So I would like practice being able to write the story that your friend is going to forward. And then the other thing that I advise founders to do is when they're, when they're doing their presentation, right? I'm like, one, I'm like old fashioned, and I really like them to have an agenda slide. This is hmm. like this is like silly tactics, if you will, because you know, look now they're on Zoom, kind of everybody's there. But when we go back to the office, there's this bad habit of like some venture capitalist coming in late, right? And then there's always this habit of venture capitalist kind of like showing off and wanting to ask a question, you know, before their partner type thing. Right. So one way to handle that is by having an agenda slide. And even if you don't read through the agenda slide, it's like a three minute pause where you're waiting for the late people to come in. Right. And then someone says, oh, I see on your agenda slide that you're going to talk about lessons learned or progress to date. I'm really interested in that. Well, once someone comments on what's on the agenda slide, you know exactly yeah. <laughs> what to say when you get to that part of the slide. And it kind of keeps things on track, Yeah. right? If you haven't had the agenda slide, someone says, well, wait, when are you going to raise money? But if you told everybody when you're going to see it. Now, I know a lot of people in this day and age, especially in Zoom, review decks ahead of time. 
But, you know, we're going to go back to the period where, you know, not everyone's reviewing the deck. And sometimes the first time they've seen it um, is there. And then under the sales trick, the actual sections, when you talk about the things in the agenda slide, don't actually have to match word for word. Mm -hmm. Some people like lessons learned. Some people like progress to date. So, like, use them both and just you know, have multiple, multiple shots on goal. Sure. Absolutely. Um, and so, then the, uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Bri. Go ahead, Bri. I was just going to say, I love this tactical advice. I think this is meaty stuff. Go ahead. And the other thing that I advise is when any entrepreneur is writing their pitch, mm-hmm. they should have three PowerPoint presentations open literally at the same time. And one is the presentation they're going to give to the venture capitalist. One is the presentation for their customers, and one is the presentation for their partners or distribution partners. And if they don't know who that third one is, they got kind of got to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And the reason I want or I recommend that all three slides are slide decks are open at the same time because often I see slides where it's really not for me as a venture capitalist. It was really a customer slide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you have all three open at the same time, when you're making the deck, you can think, God, where where should this, I, lo- I love this slide. I love my pictures. <laughs> I love my product. <laughs> but like, where should that go? Yeah. And, you know, and the classic cases, you know, you see decks where it's like, you know, we have the lowest cost product. Yeah. I don't want to see that as a venture capitalist, right? <laughs> I want to see we have the highest cost project, but we have the highest margin, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't want to see product names, right? All of these features that people add, a lot of stuff. That goes in the customer presentation. Sure. So look, I understand it's human nature to do this, right? Um, so my my trick is just have the three presentations opened up at the same time. And when you come up with a slide that you really love, just decide where it goes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that advice. Uh, to echo Bree, I think that that's tactical advice that all of the founders out there that are listening or watching the show can employ right away. Um, I, I would take that another step, Dan, and, and say, know who you're pitching, right? Uh, I mean, this is 101 of, of, of pitching is understanding that you're pitching a VC. What are they interested in? What is their investment thesis? How do you line up with what they need from a bottom line perspective from you, right? Uh, you know, what is your customer need? What are your partners need? And I think the answer is clear when you kind of view it through that lens that you need to have three different decks and the story is not the same. Uh, the narrative is is so different, particularly in young founders. So many times I see decks that are, aimed at their customers and not aimed at the investors. Uh, and it's not heartbreaking, but it's, you know, it's like, ah, it's frustrating. Why, why can't you? I agree with you. It, you it, 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 was, yeah. it was born in those frustrations. In fact, from particularly the young founders that I came up with this, this idea, which is just have the three presentations open. Sure. And that might help them through that process of who are they selling to? Yeah. Right? Because by the way, young founders often have, don't have the experience of ever having a sales role. Right. Right. Or ever having to carry a bag and this idea of who you're selling to. 
And then, of course, if you're in a SaaS sales machine today, right, you know, you're already given who the customers are you're talking to, right? Sure. You're not, you're not, you don't learn that experience about like, you know, trying to explain this or that to the customer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I had to learn all of this kind of like on the fly in Asia, right? Yeah. Speaking through translators, right? Where the whole game was how fast could you figure out the level of knowledge of your customer? Yeah. Yeah. Right? And that was like the hardest thing. Right? Do they even know what they're doing? Where are they in the government ministry allocating semiconductor fabrication money? It was like, you know, the misses were so great that I sort of figured out this like it is all about knowing knowing about your customers. Yeah. I'm so glad. I know Bree and I were smiling at each other. So I know she's she's happy about this too, that you bring up Hong Kong. Uh throughout reading uh, and researching you, um, it is very clear to both of us that travel has played an important role in shaping you and, and your life and and has informed a lot of the ways that you go about being a leader and, and making investment decisions. Um, starting with Hong Kong, can you talk a little bit about the impact that um, your time there had on your personal and professional life? Um, sure. Um, I had a, uh, a, a super great career at Ultratech Stepper where I started, you know, in the product marketing, as we called it, department. And I finally sort of did well enough that I was about ready to go back to business school. And I told the CEO that I was now ready to go to business school. And he said, now nah, I got a different deal for you. And uh, they made me managing director of Ultratech Stepper Hong Kong Limited, you know, like a month before my 28th birthday. Right? And my wife and I moved out to Hong Kong where there was like a fledgling operation. And we had, you know, some running equipment in Taiwan and in Korea with orders backed up by the Defense Department for approval for China. Right. And it was this. You know, I got to have an operating role with a P&L and I got to hire people that didn't speak English um, and sort of learn. And I got to sort of learn on the fly again how to be a salesperson in sort of the hardest possible environment yeah. right? where it was, you know, the whole game was how do you figure out what 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 others understand about your product? Yeah. Um, and it was a blast. We were there for two years. Um, I covered Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, mainland China, um, and India. Yeah. And then I had a counterpart in Japan that I visited and helped out from time to time. Yeah. Sidebar, there's no way that you didn't play badminton in all of those places. You <laughs> must have. Um, it wasn't a story I was planning on telling, but um, I did bring my bad badminton rackets. Yeah. Um, I did uh, run into a buddy that I played with in the United States in Hong Kong. So I played in Hong Kong with some people. Yeah. And I played a few times in Taiwan and word got out that there was this Guaylo Gaijin Cantonese <laughs> <and laughs> or Mandarin. Or Mandarin, yeah. Who played remarkably good badminton. Yeah. And the TSMC's largest supplier of parts 
challenge me to a badminton match for which he wanted to play for like money, like the <laughs> purchase order on something. Wow. Right. And I was there with the CEO of my company who was like, Dan, I don't think you're authorized to bet $2,000 on a badminton match. <laughs> That's like a movie. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. And normally I lose. Normally I would lose to my customers. It's like, you know, it's like, golf. sure, sure. Like, absolutely. Lose to your customer. But there was but- like, there was like a purchase order on the line. Here. Yeah, you got a PO on the line. And um, I did beat him, but I made it close. <laughs> uh, that's he, he funny. Did, unfortunately, he brought all of his employees. He had like 100 employees, like on the side of the gym in Taiwan, watching this thing. So wow. I kind of had to make it close. But yes, See, I, I, I did play badminton when I was in Asia. If I had known high-stakes badminton uh, matches uh, you know, existed, I would be all over that. I've well, <laughs> done that know, more. It's the highest of high stakes badminton match at $2,000. Probably ever. I don't think it of, got. I don't think it time. got any higher than that. But of yes. all time, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I I used to play badminton in Singapore and a few other spots, uh, but my my main love was always squash, uh, and uh, I'm a better squash player than I ever was a badminton player. Uh, and so I, I remember playing squash for, for work, uh, for consulting trips that I would go on and, and have a great time in that, that part of the country, uh, of the world. Um, we got sidetracked on Batman. Sorry. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, so are you, when you're not traveling for work, right. Uh, and, um, you're just, you're, you're doing it for fun. Are you a planner? Or are you more laissez-faire about, you know, putting together an itinerary? Um, it sort of all depends. When I go to Europe or Asia, I'm a planner. You're a planner. I'm kidding. My wife or children are the planners, right? Got it. Um, I have done the cross-country drive with my daughter when she was going to business school and back. Yeah. And that was all optimized on the number of states that we could go visit. You know, fantastic. Based on the weather condition, um, and the Rubin family rule for a new country or new state is you have to have eaten a meal or had a beer um, in the state. <laughs> that is a fair rule. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. That's start a great that. rule. So, like on Father's Day. Four years ago, I had a donut in Oklahoma, right? We drove out of our way on the way, way to Texas so we could have that. You know. <laughs> Check that off the list. Oklahoma done. Right. In oh. South Dakota, we stopped at a McDonald's and I was still ate, eating my egg McMuffin when we crossed into Minnesota. And my daughter wasn't clear that that should count because I had not actually finished my breakfast. But yes. and did you give yourself South Dakota? I yes, we have you did on that trip. Right? I, I said I'm just going to turn around and drive back if you don't count it. Well, but, and, and and looking ahead, so to uh, the listeners and the viewers out there, uh, our esteemed guest Dan Rubin uh, is on a mission to add all 50 states to his Bin app, uh, and with 49 down, the last one was Alaska. Uh, are you fired up about North Dakota coming up? I am. And um, we are trying to fit it in. We we avoided it in the cold. 
right? Yeah. And the question is, which weekend do we fly up to North Dakota to have? Yeah. But it's, it's well, going to be done this year. Uh, we are reaching that, that point in time of the show where Bree and I like to play a game called Five Questions with Drinks for the VC. Now, the interesting thing about our five questions is that they've evolved over the several seasons that we've had. And um, <clears throat> we've we've kept a few of them, but we've also uh, prompted ChatGPT and come up with a few others that we've we've thrown in there. So um, we're excited to unveil a whole new edition of five questions with the drinks with a VC, uh, the Dan Rubin edition. Are you ready to play? I'll tell you this: you have a really good chance of winning because everyone wins. Hundred <laughs> percent pass rate on this one. No right or wrong answer. Uh, more but you will be judged based on your answers, <laughs> and not just by us, by our our listeners and viewers, etc., all around the world. Um. So here we go. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Brie, serve it up. What is your go-to karaoke song? I know the one I will never do again, the 12 Days of Christmas, which I did it. <laughs> I did in Hong Kong on the mistake, and it was the longest time to ever be up there. Right? <laughs> my, my wife and I have not gotten over this. Yes. <laughs> so, right, that's the one I would, I would never do again. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. All right. Uh, number two. If you could invest in any fictional startup from a movie, TV show, or book, what would it be? In one of the Tom Clancy novels, okay. there was a, um, a security uh, product that reworded a few sentences or a few words in every version of the document that went out. So if it got leaked, they could tell where the leak was from. So from someone who wishes they had done more cybersecurity deals, and for all I know, it's done today, yeah. right? It's the uh, the Tom Clancy inside the CIA. You can figure out where the leaks come from, uh, security device. Love it. Love it. I like it. All right. If you could do it all over again, would you rather be an investor or a builder? I am uh, much happier being an investor. <laughs> I, I really like the... I, I miss the operating stuff, but I like the switching context back and forth. Hmm. And you can learn so much from being an investor in many deals to help the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Number four, what movie best fits the future of the human race? WALL-E, where we've all degenerated into an obese state due to anti-gravity in the metaverse. Uh, Avatar, where... Um, we're dominated by this quest for resources, new worlds, and walking around in avatar bodies, or the matrix where we're all in the simulation. I'm having trouble with this one because, <laughs> because I'm a lot more optimistic on kind of our ability to solve the resources climate mm. change problem. Okay. So I'm leaning towards avatar. Okay. Um, but I think the the resource finding, uh, because of the, if you will, the technology competition of new companies figuring out is going to make it a lot better yeah. than in Avatar. So Avatar three, right? Sure. The, Avatar three, you know, would be the 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 
dramatic drop in unobtainium. <laughs> Fantastic. I love that. I love it. I agree. What is the one deal you passed on that you wish you hadn't? So I actually have trouble finding a, a classic deal that I saw that came in and presented to me that we didn't do. Mm. Right. Um, to me, my biggest mistake was not following up on some founders when it wasn't clear we could get in the deal. Mm. So, for example, I think I was the first venture capitalist ever to look at Napster. Mm. Wow. Like July of 99. Wow. I had to look up the date of Napster to see if I was kind of close here. And I had a chat chat with the CEO who was not Sean Parker, right? There was a CEO there. And I I said, this is, I downloaded the product and I used it. I said, this is the most amazing thing. What are you going to do about the legal problems that you've created? Yeah. And when yeah. she didn't have a good enough answer, I didn't follow up. Mm. It was launched June 1st, 1999. Right. So wow. I, I became a venture capitalist in about May. My first deals were looking at music. When wow. someone saw Napster, they said, Dan, you're our music guy. I never did a music deal. You should go look <laughs> at it. I downloaded it, and I picked up the phone, and I called her. Wow. Yeah. And my mistake was not following up, not going in there. Right, not talking to Sean Parker, understanding what they were doing, and we probably never would have done the deal. Yeah. Right, but no Sean and the connections. To to me, that's my biggest mistake. Is like not following just because I immediately said, "Oh, it can't work legally." Right, but there's enough other things I could have learned about it. Yeah. By yeah. the way, we have a very wonderful story about Napster and our house. Um, which was my daughter, the one who just got married, was of perfect Napster downloading age, you know, when Napster came out. Absolutely. Yeah. And our rule was absolutely under no circumstances would there be copyright violation in the Rubin household until you finished your homework. That's a good. That's a good rule. <laughs> that, that was our. That was our bribe. You could use Napster as long as you wanted, as long as you've done your homework. Right, as long as you've done your homework. That makes mm-hmm. sense. That makes sense. Well, uh, Dan, thank you for playing five questions with us. Uh, as a symbol of our thanks, uh, we have one more gift to you. Uh, as you can imagine, we'd like for you to open up the bag labeled V now. These are beautiful bags. Thank you. Yeah, Ren and Bree have really upped the bag game uh, generally for across the the world <laughs> at this point. Wonderful drinks with VC Patagonia vest. Oh, I actually do not own a Patagonia vest. It's hard to believe, right? Um, uh, as much as people sent me the Halloween costume jokes about little Patagonia vests for. It's here. So I am very excited to have this. Um, and I am putting it on right now. Vic, your question about um, differences in this country and politicalization has kind of inspired me to kind of modify the answer, if I will, on the toast. And I, I would like to toast to people getting outside their comfort zones on their own opinions 
and really engaging with people who disagree fundamentally with them to not try to convince them that they're wrong, but try to understand the environment from which they're coming. And maybe that helps a little bit. And maybe, maybe we can also use that a little bit in the venture and business world also. Uh, so we can sort of, you know, all go forward and learn more. Cheers Here. to that. Thank you, Dan. We just thoroughly enjoyed uh, tonight's conversation. And um, to all the listeners and the viewers out there, I think there are so many um, bits of advice and insights uh, that you provided uh, that are really invaluable. So uh, again, thank you for your time. Uh, we really enjoyed the conversation. It's been one of my favorite episodes to to record. And um, uh, hopefully we can we can see you in person soon at, at some point in time. I, I've got to make it back to the Bay Area one of these days soon. And um, uh, all the best to you. Thank you. This was this was delightful. And I do want to put in a plug, by the way, I have had at least three of my companies who use Brooklyn right? and use Brooklyn for different yeah. parts of, of their fractional CFO and other financial needs. And at least one of them stopped using Brooklyn, and they were the ones that got in the most trouble with Silicon Valley Bank. So that mm -hmm. is my my negative warning. I yeah. believe wouldn't have gotten as much trouble had they continued to stay with Brooklyn. There you go. There you go. That that's a fantastic plug. Yeah, that is a fantastic. I I, plug. I actually several VCs that the ones that had Berkland and the ones that didn't, there was a huge um, difference in how they were handling the SVB. So, excuse me. So I've, I heard the same thing. So thank you, Dan. So Dan, so Dan in, in the intro, intro I, did I did mention uh, that, that Ellie May, May was your, your first, first deal as a VC. Can you talk, Can you talk a, a little, little bit about, about that? that? Catch full episodes of Drinks with a VC on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, and on YouTube for video. Be sure to subscribe for the latest episode drops.